Welcome to the CTO Function Podcast. I'm PJ Kerner. My goal here is to help people understand and get better at this multifaceted technology role. I interview CTOs who are doing or have done the job, and we try and learn from their experiences of building and scaling companies from the technology point of view. And while I've personally done variations of the CTO job for 15 plus years, when I get together with CTOs, often the conversation goes directly into the tech. But we're going to start by talking about the job itself and what skills it takes to do it well. And near the end, we'll dive a little bit into some technology changes and some insights from our guests. So I'd like to welcome a friend and mentor, Oliver Tavacoli, who is currently the CTO of Vectra, a cybersecurity company in the network detection response space. But he also held CTO roles at Juniper Networks, Funk Software, and Trilogy. And you'll hear some interesting sites about CTO as a connector, translator, and truth teller. You'll also hear about the size, type, and needs of an organization must match the type and style of the CTO. And you'll find some interesting thoughts about how a CTO can successfully build a team. Let's get into the show. So welcome, Oliver. Um, Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, your experience as a CTO and the organizations or places where you've played this role? Yeah, I think for me, uh, the, the, the title of CTO came to me when I was probably in my early 30s at a, from a three-person startup. Um, I've done the role in a 150-person organization. I've done the role in an organization that had 1,000 plus people in engineering. I went back to a startup and, and did it again. And now I'm in a company that has about 600 or so employees. And, and so... The title has remained the same. The job um, has looked very different in all of those stops. Um, I think I view the role oftentimes as, as a puzzle piece that fills the need of the particular organization, and not just the particular organization, but the particular time in that organization's life. Uh, and I'm, as I'm sure you've gone through your kind of 10, 10 years now at Illumio, uh, the job and what it looked like on a daily basis uh, in the early days and what it looks like now just don't resemble each other. So I think no. there's a lot of flexibility to it ultimately that, that's required. No, it's a, you make a great point that it's both time-based, like at a single organization, and then you mm-hmm. make a good point about different organizations. Well, I guess different organizations probably need different things, period. And then based on their sizes, they need they need different things. Yeah. So in, in the journey. And so right now, I mean, my, my portfolio includes a grab bag of what I call kind of oddball things. Some of them are, you would expect for a CTO. It's like I have security research. We're a cybersecurity company, so I have security research reporting up to me. Um, and that's research in service of building product, not research in service of, of kind of doing blogs and marketing and stuff like that. Um, I have obviously just pure research reporting to me, which again, you might expect from a CTO. It's like figuring out what we want to do a year, two years down the road, stuff that's high risk, that that could fail, uh, that doesn't have a certain outcome, that that product management will be unlikely um, in, the, in, the, in the realm of competing resources for other great ideas that will make money uh, to put resources into. So I view that as kind of making them de-risking certain things and making them shovel ready. And then uh, for oddball reasons, I have user experience reporting up to me. Uh, and that's more of a historical perspective. I, in prior companies that I was in, I, I came to the conclusion about 15 years or so ago that uh, you know, I can best describe myself as having been the creator of uh, user hostile interfaces for much of my career, interfaces that were um, 
complex uh, for people that had the exact same mental model that I did. And as long as you had the exact shared my mental model, you know, you would you would succeed. Um, seeing customers over time really struggle with these complex, counterintuitive, non-intuitive UIs that that seem to presume a huge investment by the end user into adapting that mental model made me believe in user experience. In, in a prior life, I tried to graph that onto an existing organization, which failed miserably. So in this this go around in my in the startup that I went to, I, I hired that from the ground up. And it's been with me ever since, just for historical reasons. Yeah, so that's an interesting, interesting thing that's not usual. I don't, you know, I don't think we you find a lot of CTOs doing that as well. But I mean, the security research and the, you know, technology research uh, yeah. seem to be pretty, pretty common. Yep. So, so if you were to sort of define, you know, and again, it's it's I totally agree. It's dependent on the function and the time. Like, what exactly? Like, what what does a CTO do if you were to sort of you know define that i think um i view this as a lot of times as a bridging uh, function and as, as a i view myself as a translator right so the business at a high level says we want to be innovative or at a high level we'll say we we, we want to solve a particular kind of problem we don't we just don't know how um and it's my job to take a small number of relatively smart people who are generally, who would generally chafe at the bit if they were basically put into product teams and told to deliver things on a particular cadence and go figure out how to get those things done. But all along the way, translating amongst the various constituencies, this is how we're thinking about the problem. And so for me, the, the skill there has always been to talk about the same problem at multiple different altitudes, um, to not try and impress people who, for whom it, it has no real value with the technical minutia, but yet to still find the right metaphor, the right paradigm, to explain it to the CEO, to explain it to product management, to explain it to kind of engineering leadership, and then also still be able to go down and talk to the data scientists and have a productive conversation. So a lot of that, that altitudinal adjustment or translation is, is what I do uh, to try and firm up in everybody's mind what we're investing into and why and what problem it solves and why. And then also learn, obviously, as part of that, you're also talking to customers who, are, who don't even have your shared vocabulary of whatever tribe you happen to be in and whatever common vocabulary you've built over time. Now you have to describe things to them in ways that make sense to them. Um, so I think for me, it's understanding stuff really well and being able to explain it to a variety of people really well to the point where they are satisfied with that explanation. And part of that then also is you, you bring along some really good technical people who would otherwise flame out within your organizations and provide them with a place where they can express themselves and ultimately be effective. So it seems like um, so so that actually, that actually answers a few questions, but like translator is one of the um, uh, one of one of the responsibilities of the of the CTO, and then you, you sort of kind of talked about how to be a good translator uh, by being deep in certain areas and bringing those people along, and and I like the altitude uh, comment, but so but what else besides being a translator? I mean, even if that's the number one thing that you think the CTO has to 
has to do. Yeah, I think I think ultimately you are trying to be the the core engine of what the company expresses two years out, three years out. Uh, for me, it's a time horizon question. Oftentimes, I think there's there's also not a there's not a vehement disagreement oftentimes between me and and product managers. It's it's a simply a different focus on time horizon. If you're if you're focused on a three month time horizon, there are lots of obvious things you should be doing that customers are yelling to, yelling at you about that will that are low risk that will provide value to some portion of your customer base. Um, but if you're trying to think three years out, now you have a series of problems. You have, you have a problem of trying to imagine, if you're in cybersecurity, of trying to imagine where the world from an infrastructure perspective will be three years from now. Obviously, as you well know, Docker, cloud, all of these technologies, the adoption of them, it's not really done by people who understand the security risks inherent in the, in the complexity of those systems and the potential for malfeasance in those systems. So on the one hand, you have this vector of well-meaning people adopting new infrastructure and new paradigms. On the other hand, you have bad guys who uh, the most sophisticated of whom will be at the forefront of, of exploiting the lack of understanding by the people adopting the technology, <laughs> right? And so you look at the nation states and so on. But then ultimately what we've seen, also seen is, you know, the, the, this stuff rapidly moves downstream, down market, right? So stuff that used to be nation state stuff a year ago. Uh, it used to take like five years for it to go from nation state to, you know, your, your, your criminal gang down the street. Now it moves more rapidly than that, far more rapidly. Um, and then the third part of this is um, what happens to your competitive landscape, like the competitors that you might be competing with and, and how they're positioned to take advantage of, the, of, of that landscape. And what happens within the organizations, your customer organizations, just politically and organizationally, like do certain things collapse together? Is there a single buying center or are there multiple buying centers? And so you're playing this kind of multidimensional game of chess of trying to imagine the world and then trying to plot a point. Again, the old adage of, you know, you skate to where the puck's going to be, not, not to where the puck is. That is an underpinning, right? So where the translation is, is, is the skill you bring in terms of gluing everything together, the underpinning is this, this reasonably clear understanding of the world as it will progress and what you can do about it to actually make, you know, in our case, our mantra is, you know, just make, make the world a, a, a fairer and safer and fairer place. Well, safer comes with, with kind of helping people get across the chasm. That's interesting. I think um, one thing I want to be doing on the show is to actually interview some CTOs who are kind of inside, who are not vendors, who are inside those organizations. And, and you're right now, I have a whole bunch of questions for them because they're the ones who are going to be pushing on that innovation curve, mm -hmm. like um, and 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 challenging us with some of these security issues. Yep. Um, what what about so? Let's say there's somebody out there watching who is not yet a CTO and wants to wants to be one. Back to the what makes it what what do you need to have to be a good CTO? What are some of those early things that you sort mm -hmm. of need 
um, or that you would look for in, in, yeah. in like somebody were mentoring? I, I would say that the, the, there has to be kind of this innate sense of curiosity and understanding things and understanding the, and, and being well, you don't have to understand everything because understanding um, everything in, in full depth, there aren't enough time, there's enough time in the day. So, but should you choose something that you want to understand, you have the means to go construct the right mental model in your brain to understand it to a sufficient degree to be able to have a meaningful conversation with somebody who works in that space um, and to understand the nuance of it so that you develop some instincts as to, you know, what is easy, what's going to be hard. So that's number one. So deep understanding. Secondarily, I think building, you need to be good at, at, at attracting really top shelf talent. And top shelf talent tends to have kind of a bullshit meter, right? And particularly on the technical front, like if, you, if you're pretending to understand something that you don't really understand, I mean, we've all been around people who just start, start throwing words around and it's like, it's pretty clear the, the way they construct their sentences around those words, they don't really understand what that thing means, but it's like the in thing to, to mention it and to throw some words around. So I think attracting top shelf talent, ultimately it makes or breaks a good CTO because you know you you want to have talent that goes along with you on a long journey and the continuity within an organization of some of that top shelf talent becomes kind of critical so the ability to, to both attract that talent and to keep it which also then means you just have to be good from an eq perspective that side of it is is very much around recognizing that one size fits one um, particularly amongst the kind of off the charts smart people they are all driven by very different things um, some like chaos some like order some like so, so so it can't just be that you your personality is that they adapt to your personality you, you should become good at adapting to those personalities because then you have the innate competitive advantage of being able to take some smart people that that feel like odd odd shaped jigsaw pieces and actually puzzle them together into something valuable. So to me, it's, 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 it's been that. And I found that like early in my career, I mean, I, I was literally about a couple of years into my career when I was, uh, this is before I was a CTO, obviously I was at IBM at the time and I got the, the opportunity because the company kind of got into a hard place, put itself between a rock and a hard place uh, to pull a team of six or seven people together that were across the world inside of IBM, these were employees, to go do this high, very high profile project. And they varied from, you know, people that were like 22 years old or my age at the time, out of, you know, almost directly out of school, people that were in their mid to late 40s that had basically, you know, had, had been in IBM for years and years and years. And it just, it strikes me now in retrospect how unusual that was to pull a team like that together and have it be distributed. I mean, this was, would, have, would have been in the late 80s, um, have it be distributed across the planet and have that actually come off successfully. And, and to me, that was kind of a great training ground. You don't realize some of these opportunities that you, that you get early in your career can build those skills for you. Uh, but that to me is, is, is the other pieces. You're only going to be as good as the collection of talent that you bring along. Um, 
a CTO in a large organization is not a, a one-person affair. The, the, the quality and depth of your personal intellect, the amount of time you have on your calendar is not going to be enough. And so build that early yeah. on. No, and I think it's that's a great point. I'm going to add that to my questions going forward because I, I didn't have it on there about uh, building a team and and how do you, like building a team in the office of the CTO is a unique situation, you know, thing unto itself. Um, I think that's that's a really. Do you good find answer. yourself also sometimes ending up with people? It's like, well, this is a really high value person in en- in the engineering team, and they're going to quit if we don't put them in your org. I mean, I've ended up with that multiple times in my career where I have kind of inherited people from the engineering org and kind of moved them across into more researchy or less structured roles. Uh, and, and they've thrived, right. But they were like flight risks before that. But I gotta believe that I bet I gotta believe that's gotta work sometimes and not other times too. Right. Um, so, so I actually want to go back cause my next, my next question is, was, was back to your point about well, I was going to ask the depth versus breadth question because, because mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes technology people will get rat holed in trying to understand everything, um, and and you sort of you know uh, use some good words around you know understand it at a significant you know at a significant depth right, and mm-hmm. you sort of qualified that. So how do you sort of you know think about that? How do you guide people on that? Because because I think that's a hard one to sometimes. Uh, yeah, um, I mean. I think the question ultimately is, is what you see yourself as, right? If you see yourself as a data scientist, if you see yourself, I've never been a data scientist, right? So I've never had that as my job title. I've never had, I've never been a security researcher. I've not had that as my title. And yet I deal intimately with both of those teams and I need to need to kind of bone up sufficiently to understand that to have a corpus of knowledge in each of those areas to be able to have meaningful conversations, not because I'm going to run the tool chains, not because I am going to look, look at the data, although I should be able to look at the outputs of those tools and understand them and, uh, and understand, you know, why the area under the curve matters, what SVMs are, what, what, you know, all the different approaches that we take kind of from a data science perspective um, that, that, that go down neural network paths and, and all kinds of other, other kind of techniques. So you want to have enough knowledge in those areas to be able to have a cogent conversation and understand the trade-offs. And the same thing on the security research side, it's like, um, what are we looking at? Why are we looking at it? How hard is it um, uh, for an attacker to find a particular hole in the, in, in the environment, how hard, how much skill does it require for them to exploit that? Um, so understanding those things sufficiently. So there's like for me, across three areas, it's important for me to have a strong foundational system. And those three areas for me are uh, data science, security research, and UX, interestingly enough, just because it reports to me. So I have a strong vocabulary built up over and out over more than a decade of owning that function of, you know, what, how you think about problems and how you think about mental models and how you think about progressive disclosure and information architectures and other kinds of things like that, so that it can have a conversation with a designer, with a very senior designer about things that matter and things that don't. Then I need to be able to opportunistically go deep. So beyond that, I can't just be magically deep everywhere. we're doing a bunch of work around looking at 
kind of path discovery, complex path discovery, like like exhaustive path discovery through through complex config infrastructures. And there's just a, a lot of ways of kind of thinking about that problem and how you project an, a potential attack progression into, and graphs don't really, really work on that front because graphs blow up in complexity. If you look at what configurations allow these days, they're more like program-like infrastructure. They're more like programming languages than than just firewall rules of old. And so, how do you build a, a you know how do you think about that problem? And so, there I've spent probably you know, the last six months going pretty deep into various parts. But it's also not something that I that I look as as needing to maintain at that degree of depth for. For, for all all time, it's just like as we move this project through its genesis and get it to a point where it kind of goes to production, then my my need to both talk to all of the parties working on it as well as translate out to the leadership team and and marketing team as to how we might talk about it, right? It, you know, diffuses over time. So um, I think it's more important that you have the capability to go deep wherever you need to go deep, then to consider that to be kind of a given that, 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 you know, you have a PhD in something and that is the thing you're deep in and everything else you're not deep in. Oh, that's inter that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, if what you're saying is in the CTO role, you're, you, you might need to go deep at certain points on some, unknown thing right uh -huh. no, nothing you can predict um to sort of succeed in whatever role you're in that's an interesting sort of skill to to have um well the business will will uh, unless the business knows up front exactly what it's going to do it's almost invariably that's going to happen and so you're either going to depend on other people to do that right um or you're going to have to step up and and that's what's exciting about this job is there there will always be the new thing that comes and upsets the apple cart and you have to think about something new. So, okay. Um, and you kind of meant, talked about this, but like, do you use any other kind of philosophies or frameworks at, in, your, in your role? I mean, you, 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 you talked about being the translator. You talked about the talking at different altitudes. I'll say those are two that you've already kind of mentioned. Um yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't tend to think of them as frameworks as much as I mean, they just become kind of little truisms for me. It's like understanding how much risk um, the organization is willing to kind of how big a bet they're willing to place at a given moment in time and, and then trying to kind of project what it will take to get to de-risk something to a sufficient degree. Um, I that do also philosophically, yeah. That is very right. interesting, right? Because because yeah. you're over time, the organization will change, right? Mm -hmm. So first of all, if you want to push anything forward, and knowing what that bar is, right, that you can get over is is important, yeah. right? Um, and then yeah, yeah and then because, getting it to that point, you got to know what it is to get it to that point to be able to do it. So. Agreed, agreed, and and and. You know, when we go through down cycles, like we're currently in the market, right, where where everybody is is far more pessimistic uh, about the future than they were, say, a year or two ago. Uh, maybe overly pessimistic, frankly, right? Um, then you basically the appetite for risk lowers. Mm -hmm. 
your ability to go for big wins. Now, either, either that means that bar is now higher, right? You need to take even more risk out of it for the company to be willing to bet on something, or it's going to take you a lot longer, or maybe you don't even undertake the project because, because the, you know, as, as one of our employees used to say, the juice isn't worth the squeeze given, given, given the environmental factors around you at that moment in time. And so this is, this is the part of the job where you've got to be grown up, you know, the, you know, in the early stages of your career, you tend to be kind of very black and white. There are good things. There are bad things. There are smart people. There are not so smart people. Refer them to maybe as idiots. And then you realize over time that this is just a, a, a many-dimensional puzzle piece, right? And different people, if, if, you, if you go talk to the marketing people, right? And, and early in your career, you think of marketing as, as one monolith. It's this thing, right? Marketing is this one thing, right? And so you, as is true with all uh, specialties, you go talk to people and you find out, okay, well, there's, that, there's product marketing, there's field marketing. Um, there, there are, there's, it's about, is this about lead gen? Is this around, you know, marketing to your customer base? Is this, is this trying to build brand? So you get all these like subspecialties, right? And so the, the notion that you had that that some, somebody wasn't very smart oftentimes just devolved into you having not any clear understanding of actually what their job involved and you only seeing a sliver of it that's facing towards you. And so I think it's it just becomes incredibly important to understand where what everybody needs and how those puzzle pieces connect. So for me, I spend a fair bit of time talking to people in, in, in other parts of the organization that have nothing per se directly to do with me. So, you know, I, I talk to the CMO, not just because I'm supposed to you know, provide some, some elements of thought leadership out of my group, right, which is, which is a natural connection, but it's like trying to really understand what they're trying to do. I, we're now in a, in a mode in my life where we have uh, you know, regional CTOs or field CTOs, depending on how you think of them, right? And so, and they report up to me, not to the sales organization. And so it's my job to figure out how to get them hooked into the sales organization, the marketing organization, how to worry about, you know, when we bring new products to market, do we have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed? And what does that actually involve? Because quite frankly, just doing a whole bunch of work and then hoping for the best, you know, on the go-to-market side also doesn't prove itself to be, to be the most effective thing. So you start thinking more broadly about the whole enchilada, right? What, what, what's everything that kind of goes into making, making a company successful. And again, making, making a product and making a company successful are two very different things. I think in the CTO side, in the early days of engineering, when you have no customers, when there's no scaling problem, uh, when you're just scrapping for the first, you know, PO or two, uh, you convince yourself you're just going to kind of build this perfect product that will sell itself, that will, you know, and that's not to say there haven't been products somehow that, that magically, you know, hits, hit the exact right spark at the exact right time. Um, but those are, those are the, the, the unusual things, quite frankly, right? A lot of this just involves, um, you know, a good enough product with a good enough go-to-market function, right, will outperform a great product with ter terrible go-to-market uh, and vice versa, right? Uh, my CEO always said, you know, it's like 
on the one end of the extreme, you imagine having such a good sales organization that you could just push anything through it. You don't really need a product team, right? On the other end of the extreme, you have such a great product organization. You don't even need a sales organization. You just, you know, sell it, sell it, you know, on the internet for nothing. Uh, well, well, for money. Uh, and then somewhere in between is where the rest of the universe falls, right? It's, it's, it's a combination of those two things. And, and so as you mature, I think you, it's a, it's a game of fractals almost, right? <laughs> it's like every time you click in, there's more detail, there's more detail, and you have to just kind of decide for each part of the organization what, what level of detail. And, and talking to me, connecting yourself to other parts of the organization. I talk to our SE leaders on a regular basis. I talk to marketing on a regular basis. I talk to sales leaders on a regular basis. Obviously on the product side, within the engineering team, right? I talk to some of the distinguished engineers that are embedded within the engineering team and try and connect the dots also for everybody because that's the other thing is like, it's not just the translating, which is the language part of it, but it's just like just recognizing that certain sets of people just don't talk to each other. I mean, the number of times you hear engineering says, well, the field gives us no feedback, you know, and it's like, well, have you tried engaging the field and building any kind of relationships? No, it's just like the feedback should just magically appear. It's like, sure, that's one universe, but in another universe, you go, you, you are of service to them and you open up pathways for communication. Yeah, so the the connecting the dots makes a lot of sense. I mean, the if I was to flip it around, just because one one thing I wonder about is like how does the how does the organization kind of measure your success? In some ways, you kind of just answered that question, but in some ways, it's the like how do they see how do they see you? I mean, obviously, they can see you as the connector, right, as mm -hmm. the translator. But is there anything else they sort of see you? And maybe there's a Maybe there are things they need you to do, but maybe it's not your maybe it's not your function to do. Like um, yeah. I kind of yeah, curious yeah. about think, that. I think, I think they're clearly I, the answers with regards to things like security research and UX are straightforward, right? My security research team needs to provide the right information, data, mental models for the data science team to build algorithms, and and so that's a straightforward kind of functional model. They don't write code but they are intricately involved with the people who do write code that don't want to go out in our product. And so we can't be bottlenecks to that. We've got to be good partners in that. We've got to be forward thinking in that. Same thing on the UX side, right? We don't produce the designs. The UI teams can't build the UIs that, that ultimately back up those designs. We want to be talking to customers. We want to be doing sufficient amount of user research. We want to basically be building the right simple UI rather than this is more about steak than about sizzle. So again, there it's straightforward. These are these are kind of operational teams, right? That that are kind of embedded in the maw of the product organization. The other parts are harder, right? Because um, you know, oftentimes this really kind of comes down to your relationship with your CEO and and whether he or she sees value in what you do. Um, because the, the CEO understands the importance, the amount of lost energy from this kind of connect, lack of connective tissue and lack of coordination. And so, you know, when, when, when my CEO gave me the, the field CTO function, because again, I've seen field CTOs play out both ways. I've seen more yeah. the sales where they become just, you know, they're, they're not really attached to headquarters per se. They're just, you know, a higher level strategic kind of sales, sales force. Um, 
in our case, you know, my CEO expressed kind of the confidence in me to kind of create that connective tissue because the struggle then is to connect them back to headquarters in any kind of meaningful way. Um, here, you know, we, we're basically put them into my org, but now the struggle is the inverse, right? Which is that the belief system is that I will do the job necessary to hook them regionally into those sales leaders to align them with what those sales leaders are trying to do within their region. Are they trying to prospect in certain pockets? Are they trying to upsell and have you know uh, stronger and, and higher level and more strategic conversations with certain key customers? So that becomes part of, it's the confidence that I will figure out a way. And over time, over the years, I've incubated a bunch of different parts of organization that ultimately there was no, no no intent for them to belong to me long term. Again, with field CTOs, I don't I, I I believe they will actually remain with me. But I started like our our analyst team and our customer success organization because we had before we had a customer success organization. I'm I'm currently running an engineering team of about 15 or 20 that is actually building product, but only at, up till they built like version 1.0, and then it'll it'll revert back into engineering. And only now under me because it requires a lot of care and feeding and the concept of exactly what we're building is kind of closely tied to the research that my team has been doing. So for the foreseeable future, I'll drive that. But the, the, again, there's no goal here to own that long term. So I, my particular skills are oftentimes around incubation, not just in the narrow sense of a particular product technology, but even in an organizational sense. Yep, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's a well, I'll have to keep that in mind and sort of see how many CTOs kind of fit into that mold. I'll have to ask a question like that. So let me let me ask you another question about career like uh, progression. Like, where do you think CTOs come from? Like, like, yeah, I think I think they tend to uh, more often than not they come out of engineering disciplines. Um, I mean, there is a T in in CTO. Um, I think. When you come out of an engineering discipline, uh, you can you can naturally be drawn towards just building stuff, right? You want to be in the maw of the machine that's building stuff on a daily basis. You can rise in that realm to be VP of engineering or SVP or EVP of engineering, right? So you're building stuff, or you can be distinguished engineer, fellow as an individual contributor. So those are two outlets, right? Another outlet that oftentimes comes up, comes back, comes up, is going into product management. Oftentimes, out of those technical ranks, people are like, the frustration is the business people aren't making the right decisions as to what ought to be in the product. So rather than just like building what the product management team tells me to build, I want to be the one in that side um, that actually provides that as as as, as kind of a, a feedback mechanism. And so you'll see people branch out of the engineering organization into product management to do that on the business side. And then I think the CTO side is, again, out of engineering, out of the direct delivery on a day-in, day-out basis, but into more of, an, of a role where you're doing stuff around the edges of that and trying to kind of set the, 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 the theme moving forward. And I think the decisions that people make just depend oftentimes on their personalities. I think oftentimes... People that come out of engineering and want to go into product management will get, go get an MBA um, because it feels like that is like thinking about it from a business sense is the augment that they that they need in order to think about gross margins and and other kinds of business modeling things as well as you know how how you bring products to market and stuff like that. 
but but for me i think the natural draw even before i really knew it i just fell into kind of the cto title because it was like yeah i want to do technical stuff deeply technical stuff but i'm not really enamored by just figuring out i've done it for many years right but just like grinding the machine of producing you know getting feature descriptions you know you know writing code producing that um you know i, I it was back, I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm quite a few years removed from kind of being an, kind of like a, what I would call kind of a alpha developer, which was probably back in 05, uh, where I would, I would still kind of just like get my hands really dirty in code and go fix things and, and, and show and guide and, and, and do stuff like that. And it's been, you know, much more conceptual since then. So then... then... I mean, that, that, so that's that's the journey. Yeah, that's maybe a journey, right? And, and yes. uh, up to that point, and both of you and I are in the CTO role right now. What do you yeah. think CTOs do after? Like, what do, what what like uh, what what do they do next beyond maybe? May, and maybe it is just be a CTO. Like, maybe that's the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the natural thing is if you look at the organizational structure, right? Most CTOs report into CEO, right? So then you look at that and say, okay. How many CTOs that you know really a want to be a CEO and b would be good at it? And I'd say the vast majority of them would neither want it nor be good at it. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule. So, to a large degree, this is kind of the terminus of the journey in terms of title. Now, you can obviously always do this in a larger organization if you if you want to flex your muscle in that sure. direction. Um, you can always go back to a startup and build something entirely new because you like that part of the journey. So yeah, going the other way, it makes it would make sense yeah. too. Maybe you you yeah. topped out and want to go back to that small area, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a constant set of decisions that you can make. Uh, certainly, you know, if you're in a in an organization of twenty thousand people and you're the CTO and the engineering team is at like four or five thousand people, that's just a very different life than being in an organization that that has fifteen people or. 20 people is trying to figure out how to build something radical and new and um, where where it's survival risk rather than risk of, um, you know, iner- the laws of inertia preventing anything interesting from happening, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause like, CT- again, back to where we started, CTOs at different sizes are really kind of different. They're different roles. They do different yeah. things. They bring different things to the table. And so, yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're title obsessed, you know, and you need a better title, then I think you've likely topped out probably as CTO. All right. Um, so, so let me, so this is a, like, in your experience, um, and I, I'm, I, I kind of imagine at some point I'll have like this matrix or multi-dimensional thing about different kind of CTOs. Do you, do you have any kind of like CTOs that fall into any different kind of buckets, right? Like in your in your mind, yeah. like um, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a, it's a method. When I when I when I've seen CTOs, I mean, I think the first order, the first axis, oftentimes is are they inward focused, outward focused, or yep. some combination of the two? I think that's a natural one. I think um, you'll oftentimes see. The ones that are deeply inward focused and are putting a lot of their energies into that, not being terribly good at being being uh, outside, just because if ninety five percent of your conversations are people that share a vocabulary with you, then it's very hard to then assume a a, a neutral 
um, you know, neutral vocabulary and having conversations with people who are not in, the, in, in, in that tribe. Uh, I view myself as probably 65 internal, 35 external. I like that blend approximately for me. I know others who are 70% external and 30% internal. Um, I know some that are clearly just external and, and where what they talk about is not necessarily even connected back to what engineering will build. They're just kind of like part of the go-to-market functions and talking about, about certain things. And then I know people, CTOs who are just incredibly internal, uh, who are working at, you know, on the core technology that is driving the ship and everybody, everything above that is done by other people within the organization. So I think it, 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 the internal external side is, 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 is certainly one piece of it. And I'll, I'll have to, other, I'll, yeah. I'll have to get, I'll have to get, I think all those things can be valuable to different types of organizations. Right. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's the, it's the, you know, CTO organization fit. And I'll, I'll have to get a few of those on there. I'll have to get a hundred percent external yeah. person and sort of see their point of view and maybe a hundred percent internal person, see how that, how that, uh, how yeah, their yeah. organization, um, understands their function and how they sort of work inside. But uh, I've also sometimes seen, particularly when you have founder CTOs for companies. Um, okay. Founder CTO might be another bucket. Yeah. I can see then, that. Well, with a founder CTO who's been around for a long time, there's a great deal of latitude. If they just want to be internal and not really do any of these other things, then the organization will say, fine, you just do that, you know, internal thing and, and, and same thing on the external side. So you'll see a spectrum again of those. Um, particularly, I think, with founder CTOs, because there's a great degree of deference oftentimes that'll, that'll be given uh, as a result of just the historical um, plug there. Um, the other thing is, you know, how closely within the organization, how separate or how integrated are you within the engineering organization or the product, or product organization? I think that's the other kind of interesting one is, are you just off doing your own thing? Um, oftentimes okay. the pejorative sense for this will be the ivory tower CTO, right? It's just kind of off doing stuff in the ivory tower. It bears no relationship to what the product team is either doing now or will be doing two or three years down the road. Uh, it just becomes like thought leadership and, and the, the impact on the organization is very diffuse. It's like some ideas filter in and some form of those ideas will ultimately maybe see the light of day versus um, CTOs who are much more kind of viewing themselves as, as what's the pipeline for the future and how do we front run the innovation and and for that to be successful, you want to find pathways for that innovation to get out. Um, and so then almost by definition, you need to have strong relationships either within the engineering teams or you need to have some repeatable model within the company where the CEO will give you a development team to stand up to bring it to a certain point and then and then and then basically at a certain point of maturity have it move into the, another part of the organization when it doesn't need that kind of nurturing. Uh, so that one's another one kind of to me. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think of other kind of interesting archetypes. Um, I don't know. Do you find that most C C CTOs have like operational responsibility. Like the UX team is like one of these strange ones, right? As I said, like literally if my UX team doesn't show up, like we have no designs, we can't go build things. If my security research team, my security research team is not just, as I said, security research in the classic sense, 
what you do research kind of for researchers sake, but they're kind of building the underlying models, the conceptual models that the data scientists will build. And so if we, if, if neither one of those, if either one of those things ran dry, the engineering <laughs> will come to kind of a screeching halt. Uh, so that's kind of like a, like, like a, like an odd one, right? So, so, so um, I have to say, so, Part of this, the reason I'm doing this this podcast is actually explore that space. And so yeah. maybe I'll have you on after I do a hundred of these. I will have, I'll yeah. keep track and I will, we'll come back and we can talk about that because I mean, I also have some operational responsibility because the entire information security team actually uh, rolls up to me mm-hmm. uh, at uh, at Illumio. So, so I do have a little bit of that different than yours. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a question. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll find out. That's what I'm trying to, cool. you know, do do here. Um, and I will. I will also. I'm going to keep track on those dimensions of 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 CTOs. I I I have to believe it's many different dimensions that uh, I will I will hear about. Yeah, as I said again, I think I think the translator aspect of it. I don't know whether that's just me or whether that's part. Whether that role has a selection bias towards people who can translate better. Um, it's just like something I've always found myself doing from very early in life and, and was always drawn to, I'd be in a room, I'd see two people talk, they're clearly talking past each other. They're agreeing with each other, but talking past each other because they're using different words for this, for, 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 uh, for a common concept. Right. And then like, well, what this person is saying, I'd be like the one in the room saying, what this person is saying is this, and what you're saying is this. So really you agree. Well, I mean, I think. It's about cloud, right? Like, cl- like, oh, are we talking about SaaS or are we talking about infrastructure service? Well, like, there's like, yeah, it's all cloud, and two people can have this conversation, and they they, yeah. they don't know what's going on. Um, yeah. No, I I agree. There's that. There's the connector aspect to it. I think that's. I mean, I think that is one that, uh, from what I know about you, I mean, is you it, it's it's one thing that you enjoy and do incredibly well. Um, I do think the you know translator and the clarifier, right? So mm-hmm. I think I think people can be clarifiers in the CTO role, but not be as good connectors, right? Because mm-hmm. you could you could you could clarify and just be you know in a, in a very annoying way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 that, but but clarification is important, right? But yeah. but but I think you know layering both those to, those together is important. Um, okay, so here let's. Um, a little bit, a little bit more, a few more questions. Just um, um, so I want to talk about tech for one second, right? So, mm-hmm. so I like to talk about technology spaces that are kind of undergoing significant change, right? So, any any area you see that's undergoing significant change, what's driving that change, and what kind of challenges might come from that change? Any thoughts in that? Well, I mean, area? Not, not not something recent, but certainly the epiphany for me over the past year or two has been as we've looked at kind of public cloud in particular, right, and the adoption of public cloud and the pace at which what is the public cloud, even even in the context of just like an AWS or an Azure or GCP, what 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 is in that box, right? The, 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 both the complexity of those systems and the rapid pace at which they're moving and the lack of understanding of the underlying complexity and the, the repercussions of that complexity just are breathtaking at times. Um, it's, it, it is 
amazing because because again you'll hear this kind of pithiness of well cloud is just you know your program running on somebody else's compute and and the very simple kind of counter example i like to give them is okay um that may kind of work in an is world but even even in the is world you'll find edges where it doesn't actually work because things like dns oftentimes are implemented as services in the back plane of these systems rather than fair on the network as an example but particularly in in the world of of you know platform as a service and like I'll give you a database like like in in Azure you can have um, you can run log analytics you, there's a language called Cousteau within which you can run programs and so you know I said to one of my researchers is like okay well if you were going to do a C2 if you had broken into somebody's Azure space and you wanted to do a C2 to the outside how would you do it and they're like okay well a week later, they come back with the, okay, here is, I would just start up a log analytics instance and load a Cousteau program into it. And within Cousteau, I can do REST API calls to anywhere. And those REST API calls do not cross the customer's boundary. They emanate out of the platform's set of IPs. And there's no visibility and no control over them. And these kinds of holes exist for every potential service that you might start up. Like you'd have to like look through every service <laughs> and say, is there a means to get it to communicate to the outside that doesn't go across my network boundary? Because you can have all the firewalls you wanted in your network boundary. The simple fact is these REST API calls don't show up there. They just go out of a you know, backend interface. So that to me is, is, is the thing I worry about is the, the, the lack of understanding of, of the complexity and the disconnect between the, the incentives of the cloud providers, which is to get you to use more and more and more, which means they generally turn things on by default when new things come along, all right? And the motivations of the security people, which is like by default, you want anything off and you don't explicitly have an intent to use. Uh, and so this just worries me greatly. It's, it's like I understand the, the, the notion that, that you want to do cloud adoption for agility and all these other reasons that are critical to the business. So do, do you think there's anything? So I think, I think, I think maybe the, the change you're talking about is not just cloud. It's, it's all of the as a service, all the PaaS things, yeah. which also is another bad word for my, my, my yeah. Like, yeah, a very fuzzy word. Yeah, an amorphous blob that does something for you and may be leaky on the back end. And so they while, maybe while the, the increase of adoption, because we do see that, the increase yeah. of adoption of those things is significant. Yeah. What do you think is driving that? Back to, like, and and you, you explained what the problem is, the, you know, the lack of visibility and understanding what the problem is. What, what do you think is driving it? What's, what's... I, think, I think what's driving it is just the complexity of standing up a large-scale system oftentimes. It's like, do you really want to worry about setting up a scalable, horizontally scalable database with all that that involves and the oversight that that involves? Or would you rather just hand the keys over to someone and say, here, you handle it for me, right? Um, I think businesses more and more try to go through, like, what is what do we have to be really good at and what do we just want to use as a service, right? I don't think it's, you know... There was the illusion in the early days that it was cost, right? But cloud is damned expensive if you use it really um, to, to, to any, anywhere near saturation. So I don't think it tends to, tends to be much cheaper, but it does tend to ultimately allow you to be plan less and choose later 
how much of things you need and that and and the agility aspect of it is is the desirability of it but i think without a clear reckoning between the cloud service providers and their customers as to what they want the default notions to be what they want um what kind of visibility they want and this is this is an area where some of the cloud providers are actually better than others gcp as an example, has a concept of kind of like a security zone where even the past service that you have can be within that. And you can set rules that says, nope, it can't communicate out and it'll block it, but Azure and AWS don't, right? And so it's just like, and yet, you know, the decision makers will just view them as interchangeable. These are just like three interchangeable things. That is an interesting, that is an interesting point. Uh, yeah, there are, I know of a lot of subtleties between the cloud service providers and those all get, you know, hidden and, you know, and yeah, oh, this, is, yeah. this is a little bit cheaper. Let's use that one. Or this has something else significant. Let's use that one. Um, or let's use yeah, I mean, one. there are the big things like, 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 you know, big query and, and, and stuff like yep. that that are known to be strengths, but, but then the, under the covers, like struck infrastructure that are, that are, that are mostly, you know, for security nerds and, and those are not nearly as well known. All right. So, so before before I go to the speed round for a second, um, is you have any so any fine any final thoughts like on the role, any advice or you know anything it, else? It's uh, fun. It's a fun role. If if you can get this title and write it through, as I said, a variety of different um, organizations, different sizes, different times, different technologies, it is it is always entertaining. It is never dull. Um, and so, you know, I highly recommend it for people that are drawn to it uh, for the right reasons. Again, a lot of it is being in service of the organization and the needs of the organization that you have. So there is that element of it. Um, but uh, you can express yourself in many different ways and it isn't as cookie cutter uh, as many other roles tend to be. Well, I think it's, so if it's high on the fun role, it's, it is also high on the difficult role. It is, uh, it is. like, uh, maybe, and maybe that's what makes it fun for those who are willing to sort of, you know, yeah, I didn't say that. easy. I didn't say easy. I, I, but, but, you know, but to me, easy things become boring very fast anyway. Right. So if you are drawn by difficult conceptual problems and figuring stuff out and explaining it to a variety of people and getting people organized and jazzed about going and solving that problem. It's a fun thing. All right. So, so the speed round here, I've, I've, there's, since I've been listening to podcasts, people do this, um, a number of different podcasts do it, but I always get like, like the first one is one first one, just what one book do you recommend? But when they, when I listen to other podcasts, I love this because I always try and look those books up for like people I've really enjoyed talking to, like the book that they recommend is you know you know is is tied to who they are and 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 how they're thinking so so okay so for you what is uh one book uh and okay and you only one have book one is very hard because I, okay I, you can I, give I, me a few uh, if you if you can't give me one I, I, will, I will give you um two that are very different um, okay uh, one that i read recently it's called four thousand weeks time management for mortals and it's not at all about like life hacks and time management. It is much more of a philosophical treatise of you have basically 4,000 weeks on this, on this earth, choose wisely the things you do, because the, the things you can do are almost infinite and you drive yourself crazy by pretending you're going to get more of them done than you are. Um, so choose wisely. Um, so that's a, that's a great book. 
Um, on the other end of the extreme, I, I like I like good sci-fi, um, and sometimes kind of good and more more obscure sci-fi. So uh, Ursula Le Guin, who is a, a sci-fi author from the '60s, um, uh, she has a cycle called the Hainish cycle. And what I love about that kind of science fiction is these are seven books that, that can be read in whatever order. They just are contemporaneous, contemporaneous rather than sequential. But they all occur in a world where there's one technological innovation that is the foundation for what changes in that world. And the technological foundation in those books is that, that humans figure out how to communicate in real time, send communications in real time beyond the light of speed, even though they can still only travel at whatever they can travel on. So you can imagine, if you imagine in, in, in America, in the, in the West, you know, when you had the Pony Express and then when you had, you know, telegraph cables and stuff like that, we still have this problem. If you think about interplanetary organization and management, if, you, if it takes the speed of light to even for a signal to get there, you can't really have a conversation, a real-time conversation with somebody. Imagine a world in which you could have that real-time conversation over large distances and what would that change? And so it's a very interesting kind of foundation and then you 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 ripple out from there so those are that's the book side okay uh, that's interesting uh, i mean i think we even need that sometimes here in our own world but uh some people need just me to pick up the phone sometimes as opposed to you know use that lower latency mechanism uh okay what about a podcast that you listen to so podcast i like I like quirky long-form stories. Um, so there's a there's a podcast that I that I love by a, a company called Gimlet Studios, which does a fair number of podcasts. They're basically kind of in the business of of producing podcasts. They did one, did an interesting one called Startup years and years ago that included them a study of themselves as they were starting up. But the the, the podcast that I like from them is is called Heavyweight, and uh, it's starting its eighth season soon. It's just very interesting, quirky stories by people who know how to tell stories well and, and they're long form and not like five minutes they're like 20 30 minute pieces oh that's interesting I, i've listened to a few of those over and like but i've stumbled across them i haven't like i haven't like gotten searched them out so interesting what about a movie or tv show ah uh, um this is again a, a hard one um i have recently watched um well now, I don't want to I don't want to recommend something simply because I have recently watched it and because I like the books underlying it. Um, so I will go with what my wife will tell you is my favorite movie, uh, which would be Groundhog Day. Um, simply because uh, what I love about that movie is that it. Um, I can watch five minutes of a random five minutes of it as I'm flipping through channels. And I have seen that movie probably cumulatively five or 10 or 20 times, always in 10 minute snippets. And every time you watch five minutes of it, it makes perfect sense. That's funny. Uh, funny way to think about it. All right. So last one. So what is a tech you love? Like a lot of people have like SaaS services that they use. I, I, um, I actually never used notion before. I, I like, uh, pick that up as a recommendation i've just been playing around with that um but what, like what's a what's a what's a thing you uh, like uh it, it feels very trite but right now the time sink is chat gpt right um because for all the reading that i do like you know i was asking it questions about like the history of the polynesian people and and you know 
whether whether schizophrenics are really people with bicameral minds. And uh, I found the edges of the universe. You know, it's not an infinite universe. Places where we're just like, sorry, you know, your 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 knowledge outstrips <laughs> my knowledge. But it is quite amazing its ability to both parse the intent out of the questions that you ask and to construct sentences that actually sound mostly rational. So did, um, did you find it correct enough? I found it correct enough for a lot of things. And I think we live in a world where, need, where we need to kind of recognize um, the desire to be perfect on everything actually sweeps a lot of things off the table. There are certain things you need to be perfect for, right? I mean, because they're life and death. You don't want self-driving cars that, 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 you know, every now and then glitch and, you know, run, run off a bridge. Um, but even there, you know, I think if you look at it statistically and, and heuristically, really the measure of whether self-driving cars are the right thing for humanity is whether um, more self-driving cars statistically end up with less accidents, not whether they are perfect. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's an interesting question, but, but to me, uh, chat GPD is just like an interesting glimpse into a, a less specialized form of AI um, that seems now suddenly have come closer within reach. I don't think it's there yet, but it's, it's believable suddenly that you know, in the next 10, 20 years, you could get to some, something meaningful. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. It's, uh, was, it was very insightful to hear everything you had to say. I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks All for right. your time. Thank you.